Hey, now I'll say good morning, everyone. I just hate when I mess up. I mean, I don't care if they all do, but I just hate, and Frank Ron's over there laughing, going, yeah, you missed that, but I appreciate that. Hey, listen, just before the whole team wants, we're on, a, we're on one of the saddest countdowns we could be in, and that is we're three Sundays away from Ron, Pastor Ron and Nancy retiring, and we're starting kind of a process of saying goodbye. As I said the, the, last week, instead of saying goodbye all one Sunday, we're just going to make it painful for you for three. But immediately following this service, would you take time to make your way into the, the video cafe. We've got a reception happening there uh, from this service on and then the rest of the day. Uh, greet them and just thank them. Oh, there's Nancy back there. I wasn't going to put them on the stage today. Don't back up or I'll make you come up front. Um, so they, I'm not going to put them on stage or anything like that, but please stop and thank them for their ministry. Uh, chances are good you're not going to be able to say everything you might want to say. So in that room as well, there's a table with these little cards. And I would like everyone that can, even if you can't stop in and, and talk for long, take a card, fill it out, tell them, what, tell them what their ministry has meant to you, and leave that there. That'll be something you can take with you and, and look at it along the way. So Pastor Ron, thank you. We're going to let you go get some cake and things. And we're going to put you up here more, but uh, our thanks. So anyway, there we go. And we'll have other times here to embarrass them up front, but um, that starts off things this morning. And so good morning to you. So glad you've chosen uh, to be a part of us and to worship together. Just a second, we'll get into the word. Uh, highlight just a, one, a, a couple of key, key things. But one would be this afternoon, discovery class. Um, one, Pastor Scott will not answer every que- all of your questions. Um, you know, make sure you heard what she said. He'll answer the questions about who we are as a church, those kind of things. Uh, but then the next thing I heard too is they threw me under the bus. You know, listening to Pastor Scott's fun, but working with the kids is more fun. Uh, and that's probably true. But I want to invite you this afternoon, 3 o'clock. Um, if, you, uh, if you haven't signed up, you can still come and be a part of that. Uh, learn about the church, what makes us tick, why we do the things that we do, philosophy of ministry. If you've ever wondered about some things, you know, why does the church do that or why don't you do that? Um, this is the time to come and get your questions answered. And I'll spend that t- some, some time uh, going through our strategy, thought process, all of those things that for some of you will help bring into clarity uh, who we are as a church and how we function, those kind of things. So so it's at 3 o'clock, it goes 3 to 7, it's kind of a long, long time, I know, but a couple things. One, we'll stop and we'll feed you in there, so we'll give you dinner, and the, the 7 o'clock is the, is the drop dead finish time, meaning we'll be done by then, committed to that, typically earlier than that, but we give a lot of time because what we don't know is we don't know how many questions come and having some of those dialogues. We'll have other church leaders here as well, so you get to meet some people, know who they are, and uh, hopefully you can be, be a part of that. I was thinking about the men's breakfast, and one of the advertisements was that come have breakfast with Pastor Scott. How good can that be? How good can it be to spend four hours with me? Um, I mean, how good can that be? None of my kids are coming, of course, because they, they, they know how painful that would be, four hours. But anyway, that's today, three o'clock, and uh, hopefully you can be a part of that. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our series. I have a question. We're talking about uh, we're talking to people who've never made the commitment to give their life to Jesus Christ. And a reminder, again, we're talking to those of us who have that we're hoping to understand how do we better communicate with people? How do we talk about uh, spiritual things? How do we have that dialogue? And also we're talking about having a better understanding in our own lives as to how we came to Christ and how God works in our lives. Because I want you to know that the way that he works in our life to first step into our life is the same way that he'll work in our lives all through our lives. It's not like there's just one way 
way that we begin the journey and then it all changes for the rest of the journey. So as we walk through this, I think we, can, we continue to get better understandings of who God is and how he works in our lives. Now, to get us started this, this morning, um, I want to use a baseball illustration to get us started. Uh, some of us right now are, care very much about baseball in the postseason. Some of us care less than others. Um, so we're going to talk about that. And if you're just thinking, oh, I'm not a baseball person, just stick with me. Because even if you're not a baseball person, you're not a Red Sox, Santa, Yankee fan, whatever it may be, just stick with me. Because quite honestly, the illustration is not about baseball. And it really does fit helping get a thought process here as we get started. So in baseball, pitcher gets on the mound and throws a fastball. He's got a curveball or a slider, a knuckleball, a changeup. He got all those things. But a pitcher will throw a fastball. A fastball is basically just throws the heat. You know, I mean, bottom line is there's nothing fancy about it. That guy's going to get up there and throw that ball about as fast as and hard as he can. And a, a fastball will typically be at least 90 miles an hour. So we'll start with that. And the illustration we're going to talk about this morning is how to hit a 90 mile an hour fastball. How to hit a fastball. A quick side note for you. I'm not sharp enough to put all this together myself, just so you know. So uh, this is information and, and uh, research done by people far more brilliant than I. So I'll just give that right away. But this is how to hit a 90 mile an hour fastball. Now a Yale physicist put a whole team of scientists together and they decided they were going to tackle and set out to study the science of hitting a 90 mile an hour fastball. Now here's the process they began to go through and some of the data that they found out along the way. So first of all, they assembled, of course, all the components they needed, meaning they needed pitchers, batters, all those things. They hooked them up on machines and did all the things and getting brain waves and all the stuff you have to get to kind of figure this dynamic out. And here's what they found. They found that a nine, now think about this, they found that a 90 mile an hour fastball travels 60.5 feet. So 60 and a half feet in 400 milliseconds. Now I want you to think about that for just a second. That's less than half a second. So a fastball, and here's what they discovered, and they, they looked at it 10 different ways to make sure they got this right. So a fastball, when it leaves the pitcher's hand, will travel that whole distance and be in the catcher's glove in less than a half a second, 400 milliseconds. And again, they did, they did all the clocking they could do and verified it. Now, half of that time, half of that 400 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds is spent by the batter's brain trying to find the ball in the air, get the image in the brain, and then process whether or not to swing. 400 milliseconds, ball's coming in. 200 milliseconds, the batter's brain is working to find the ball in the air. And then in the middle of that, in that process, determine whether we're going to swing or not. Now, that's half of that time. So half of the flight time of less than a half a second, the brain is working just to find it and to determine, help the body determine whether to swing or not. Now, if the batter decides to swing at the ball, it takes another 100 milliseconds for the batter to actually swing because in those 100 milliseconds, the batter's brain is going through, do we swing high, do we swing low, where is the ball, and how do I have to adjust the body to get there? Because you know, you got the bat like this, and if the ball's here, that's one thing, but if it's up high or down low, so it takes 100 milliseconds for the brain to process where to swing the bat. Now, a little side note for you, once the, once the batter decides to swing, he only has 50 milliseconds in which to stop the swing if he decides to stop. 
So that means the brain and the body says swing. Once they start, they only have 50 milliseconds in which to decide whether to stop or not because after 50 milliseconds, the bat is at 70% of its total speed. And there's no stopping it at that point. So that's what they discovered. On top of that, they found this. There is only a differential of seven milliseconds. A seven millisecond variation will determine whether that batter just nicks the ball, foul tips the ball, actually makes contact with the ball, or misses the ball altogether. Seven milliseconds will determine what happens if the bat hits the ball or not, or whatever happens then next. So then they took all of this data and they put it into the system and ran it. They checked it, rechecked it, tested it, retested it, verified it, substantiated it in every peer group evaluation, all those kind of things. They put it all together and here was their conclusion. It is indisputable that it is humanly impossible to hit a 90 mile an hour fastball. That's the scientific conclusion. It is humanly impossible and indisputable that a person can hit a 90 mile an hour fastball because it takes 450 milliseconds for the body in for the batter in which to act on it and in 400 milliseconds the ball is already in the glove so they said it is humanly impossible now here's my question now you may not know how to answer this if you're not a baseball person but here's the question how many believe that conclusion to be correct Huh. No hands. Why is that? Because every one of us would say, because we've seen it happen. I mean, the science is there, but we've seen it happen. I mean, we've seen people hit 90-mile-an-hour fastballs. But here's the deal. We've seen it happen, but anyone who's against it will not say, well, I think their dad is wrong. You wouldn't say, I think their dad is wrong because that physicist will come up and show you, hey, we've checked this every, every which way we can. The data is absolutely correct. So no one's going to say it's wrong. No one's going to say, I think you missed a calculation. None of those things has been verified, peer-reviewed, all those things. So if you say, no, I don't buy it, it's not because of the data. It's because of what you have seen and what you have witnessed with your own eyes. You'd say, not only have I seen it, but I've seen people hit 95-mile-an-hour fastballs. I've seen people hit 100-mile-an-hour fastballs, which would really be impossible. So how is it possible? Now, very sincerely here, think this through. How is it possible that so many people, in fact, right now, everyone in the room, and for those at home watching or at North Avenue, I don't know if you raised your hand or not, but how is it possible that all of these people would say the science is absolutely wrong? even though the science has been proven to be absolutely right. How can that be? Here's, here's why. Because we are smart enough not to choose the unexplainable over the undeniable. Make sure you let that sink in for a minute because it really is important when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ. The reason we would say, yeah, we got all the evidence, we got all the scientific evidence, we got it. However, not true doesn't work. Why? Because we're smart enough to say, wait a minute, there is something unexplainable, but what we can't deny is the undeniable. We know what we know. Hitting a nine to five mile fastball is completely unexplainable, but it's not undeniable because of what we've seen and we've seen it happen all the time. Now, I want you to know all through our lives, this, this principle applies. All through our lives, there are things in our life that we will accept 
as undeniable even though it's either unexplainable or we don't completely get it. This cell phone, every time I pick it up and use it, I don't know how it works because I can't even begin to, I, I can't figure it out. Now, that's not because I'm stupid. It's because the mechanics of it just blow my mind. When in the early days of cell phones, I was in Europe. I was in, a, I was in a department store in London and my phone rang and I picked it up and said hello. And it was a pastor friend of mine back here who was calling me, didn't know I was out of town. And he said this, he goes, unbelievable. And, I, I, and I'm thinking the same thing. And I'm going, it is. I go, why do you say that? He said, you not only picked it up in the first ring, which you never do, I literally, I just pushed send and was putting it to my ear and you're already saying hello. How did that happen? How can that be? I don't understand it. It's unexplainable to me. But undeniable, it happened. This microphone on my ear. I cannot tell you, I can't begin to explain to you how this works. But it works really well and I like it. In a baseball game, think about this. You can be at Fenway, because they're still playing this time of year. Um, You can be in Fenway watching the game in the stands, and there's a big hit, a crack of the bat. I'm watching, well, not me personally, somebody's watching. Uh, Somebody's watching at home on television. You're in the stands, and there's the crack of the bat, and I hear it at home before you hear the crack of the bat in the stadium. That signal went from the microphone to a satellite, through a whole system, to a satellite, back to my satellite, into my house, to my TV, and I hear the crack of the bat milliseconds before you hear the crack of the bat. How can that be? Every one of us were in science class, and you might remember the teacher talking about airplanes and how they fly, and they talked about this thing called lift. And if you remember science class, the teacher typically took a piece of paper like this and went like this. Watch this. And they blow across this edge and the piece of paper would go up. And they'd say, that's lift. And they'd explain all the scientific data about lift. And that's what makes airplanes fly. And you go, okay. I was on a flight that was headed to Tokyo. I was sitting in the plane and I was reading some statistics and they were saying some things like this plane is going to consume roughly 187 liters of fuel on its way. And I'm not thinking much about it, but I'm thinking, I wonder how much 187 liters of fuel weighs. And so I started doing some math. I saw my phone. I'm doing the calculations, whatever. We're talking like 340, 50,000 pounds. And all of a sudden... This scientific data of making that paper move doesn't feel good to me (laughs) because that's just the weight of the fuel. And I'm looking around, the people are looking like me, and we're adding another 350,000 pounds, just us. (laughs) And all of a sudden, we go, man, that's unexplainable to me. But what's undeniable is those planes land and take off every day. So I want you to get that point because that's something that happens in our lives. Now, this morning... When I want you to understand that people who decide to follow Jesus Christ do so because something happens in their life that becomes undeniable. Something takes place along the way. We've been talking about that personal moment where often in our lives, we don't allow that which is completely unexplainable because we have to have some evidence, but all of a sudden something will happen that we completely allow the unexplainable because of the undeniable, and that's true in our walk with God. Our text this morning is from John chapter 9, and it is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. 
because it is so full of different applications in multiple directions. It's John chapter 9, and it's this guy who's blind, who's begging on the side of the road, who has an interaction with Jesus. And it could not be more personal. Let me offer a prayer. Father, as we look to your word this morning, I ask that you'll speak into every one of our lives, every one of our hearts. If there is someone who's watching this, if there's someone who's here this morning that has yet to place their faith in you, I certainly pray with all my heart that they would be, have an open heart to the undeniable. For those of us who are followers of you, might we see ourselves in this story? Might we, might we see how you work in our lives? But on top of that, might we have better understanding uh, how to speak into people's lives in such a way that, that matters and that makes a difference? I give you this time and ask you to speak into our lives in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. The story begins in John chapter 9, the first verse, and here's what it says. As he went along, referring to Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The story starts with a question. The story starts with a, a good theological question, or at least a good question in general, as to what caused this. They come along and there's a fellow who's blind and they just look at the guy and they say, hey, we got a question for you because don't forget, they're trying to sort all these things out as they're walking with Jesus. And as they're doing that, they're living in a culture where if something happens to someone physically, it's got to be a reason. And so they see this guy blind and so a logical question for them is say, hey, we got a question for you. So is he blind because he sinned or did the parents sin? Now, of course, if you step back and think about it for just a moment, he was blind since birth, which would mean if he sinned, he had a sin in the womb. So the question probably isn't really well thought through, but that's the question. Did he do something wrong or his family do something wrong that would make him blind? And I would say to you that as they're beginning to think this through, I would say that we do the same thing all the time. You see, we're very much cause-effect people. We understand there are things that happen in the world. We understand that there's bad things that happen in the world. We understand that different people will do different things, make decisions that affect us, all those things. And yet, when it happens and it profoundly affects us, we're pretty sure there has to be a, someone to blame. It happens all the time. And we're living in a culture right now where it's Biden's fault. I mean, what's happening is Biden's fault. And of course, if you're not there, you're in the other camp that says, oh, it was Trump's fault. You know, and Trump got us into this mess and then Biden's trying to get us out of it. Or you swap it around. If Trump were here, we wouldn't be in this mess anymore. Biden's the one that's causing it. It's the Democrats that are causing it. It's the Republicans that are causing it. It's those vaxxers that are the problem. It's the anti-vaxxers that are the problem. And just so you'll know that regardless of your viewpoint and regardless of how your mind goes and thinks about whatever this catastrophe catastrophe is that certainly has to have someone to blame. I mean, a catastrophic moment such as this has got to have someone, someone's got to be responsible for this. As much as that's what you think, Jesus would say, you keep asking the wrong questions. Friends, even in a side note in this sermon, there's a nugget here of truth I hope that in this culture today you'll grab a hold of. I think Jesus would say the problem with you people is you keep asking the wrong questions. By you people, I'm not referring to you. I'm referring to you people. And I'm in that circle. Okay, just so you know that. Jesus, way, the problem is you keep asking the wrong questions. See, don't forget what Jesus would say would be this. See, one of the purposes for me coming to earth, you know, I, redemption plan, absolutely. But one of the purposes for me coming to earth is so that you get to see firsthand what God is like. 
You see, when you read and read, read and watch the life of Jesus, Jesus would say, when you see me, you've seen who? The Father. So Jesus comes on earth so that we get a good look at what God is like. And so the bottom line is we want to accuse and we want to blame. And I think Jesus would say this, well, instead of that, why don't you ask the question, well, what can God accomplish in this moment given these circumstances? Now, friends, I got to tell you, that fits your political agenda. That fits your, fits your position on COVID or vaccines. It fits your position in your marriage. If you're going through a tough time in your marriage, it fits uh, whatever it might be in your life, in your workplace. It fits the story to be able to say, I'm in a bad place right now. I wonder what God wants to accomplish in this moment. See, that's the question that I think Jesus would say would be better suited for us and would serve us better. I got news for you. When you ask the question, who's to blame for this, does that get you anywhere? But a better question is, how can God use this? So Jesus answered them, and he says this in verse 3. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one could work. And that's exactly what Jesus said. He goes, listen, you're asking the wrong questions. The, the question isn't whether he sinned or they sinned. The issue is God's at play here. God's at work here. And so what you ought to be asking is, how do we get in on this? How do we participate in what God wants to do in this moment and in my life and the life of others? How do I get in on this? He goes, that's the better question. And then he goes and he says something else, verse 5. In fact, he comes in and makes a statement that is really quite arrogant. In verse 5, he says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, that would have been, just so you know, that would have been quite an arrogant statement for him to make. That while I'm here, I'm gonna, I am the light of the world. Now, for those religious leaders, um, this would have been something that they couldn't tolerate and would be the, one of the most arrogant statements. But understand, it actually is one of the greatest invitations in Scripture you'll ever see. Greatest invitations of Scripture. An invitation to do what? See, don't forget, Jesus said, I came and I am the light of the world. Well, what does light do? Light illumines. Light pushes the darkness away. Light allows you to see. Light allows you to walk into a place where it's gray and fuzzy and dark and you can't make sense of it all. And the light turns on and now you can make sense of it all. Now I can see. Now I can understand. Don't miss this incredible invitation. Jesus would say this. I've come to bring clarity. I've come to show you what God looks like. See, your minds are a little messed up here because you got these bad, distorted views of what God is like and how he operates. So I'm going to invite you to take a good, long look at me. Because as you look at me, you'll see him. In fact, here's an incredible invitation. I invite you to thoroughly explore my life. And as you do that, the light will come on. The light's already on but the light will come on in your own heart and mind. In fact, here's a great invitation that he offers, and I say to any one of us here. This is an invitation to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not, not above the rest of the Bible, but in those four books, what do we have? We have the accounting of the life of Christ on this earth. Do you know how many, I mean, I, I, it's a, a, a rhetorical question. Any idea how many people have come to faith? The answer is countless numbers of people have come to faith in Christ simply by reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why? 
because they're reading the story of Jesus. And they begin to get a clearer view. What happens is they begin to read the life of Jesus that's been lit up because he's the light of the world. And then quite honestly, the light comes on and they say, man, look at that. Now, when they're trying to figure this all out, when Jesus says, and by the way, as long as I'm here, you know, I'm going to light up the world. I'm the light of the world. They're trying to figure that out. Jesus is busy at work. So now in verse 6, so after saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva. He put it on the man's eyes and he, told, he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him, uh, seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Catch this, mud pies on the eyes, mud pies on the eyes and a dip in the pond, and this guy can see. Is that explainable in any way, shape, or form? See, today, maybe a surgeon could do something where we'd say, well, that's understandable, but not this. Mud pies and a dip in the, in the pond, and this guy comes home and is able to see. The people who saw him began to say, how can this be? How can this be the same guy? Didn't make any sense. At first they saw him and they go, oh, that's guy. And then they're going, wait a minute, he can see. That can't be the same guy. So that's the question. And then we have, continue on in verse 9. Some claimed that he was the guy. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself, he himself insisted, no, no, I am the man. Some said it was him, some said that it wasn't. One side note for you, interesting. He goes down, he washes, and he doesn't go back to Jesus. That strikes me as a little odd. Doesn't that catch you a little bit odd? I mean, wouldn't you think if somebody had just put mud on your eyes and said, go wash your eyes, and you go down and wash your eyes, and we're not talking about a long way away, so it's a short journey, goes to the pool, dips in the pool, washes his eyes, he can see. I'm just thinking my thought process would be, I got to go back and find this guy. And even if it's not to say thank you, I just got to go see this guy. You know, if, you, if I'm blind since birth and all of a sudden you give me sight, I just think and I want to be next to you. I mean, anywhere you go, I want to follow because, of, if, I mean, it's just got to get better than that. But he doesn't. It says he goes home. Goes home. Because we have the conversations that are happening with the neighbors. So he actually washes and goes, actually goes home, and everyone sees him. And the people who see him are the people who live around him. And they're the ones that are saying, is this the guy I can't be? And the guy finally says, yes, it's me. So I love the line of questioning that happens next in verse 10. Well, how then? He says, well, I am the guy. Well, then how is it that your eyes are open? They ask him. He replies, well, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Well, where is this man? They asked him. I don't know. He said, I mean, good answer. Where is he? Well, I was blind. I don't know. And I mean, again, here's the thought process. Can, imagine this question going. So there the guy is. They're not sure what to do with him. I mean, they can't believe it's him because they can't believe that he actually can see, but they can't deny that this is the guy. And so they start this questioning. So who did this? The guy says, a guy named Jesus. Well, where is he? I don't know. I'm blind. What did he do? I don't know. I was blind. I mean, you said he put mud in your eyes. Correct. Where did he get the mud? I was blind. I mean, think of all this. Up until the moment he washes his eyes, this guy has no point of reference other than some guy, and it may not have been Jesus. They're just telling me it's him. Somebody put mud on my eye. It could have been a prank as far as I know, but whoever this guy was told me to go wash my eyes in the pond, and I did it, and it worked. 
And they said, well, how can you explain it? He goes, I can't. Can you give us any other details? I was blind. And you're the first ones that I'm seeing. So they are absolutely perplexed. Now, don't forget, these are just the neighbors that are asking. They decide that they need expert help because this makes no sense to them. Now, you get that, right? If you see something happen that is beyond explanation, you're sitting there going, there's got to be an answer. And I think it's a natural thing to think that the next thing you would do is to say, who can help us? Someone's got to help make sense of this, so they're going to go get help. And why? why? Why go get help? Because the undeniable is clashing with the unexplainable. Those two things are banging heads, and they've got to figure this out. So they seek help in verse 13. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who'd been blind. And now the day in which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said, he put mud on my eyes, uh, and then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. So here it goes. So, so now they're, in, they're at this point of the story, and everything devolves into the most odd conversations that you can imagine. So the oddest and most absurd dialogue that people could have ever had. So why so absurd? Because, and I, and I want you to get this, because it's going to be very, very key in how you come to Christ, and very, very key in how God will work in your life from the day you say yes to Jesus to the day that you die. Let me give you a perspective here. Every single one of us has a God box. Everyone has a God box. And what I mean by that is this. We have a box that we create based upon what we expect God to do or be, based on our experience, based on what people said to us and whatever. We're always forming this idea of what God is like and how God works, all of those things. And we take them all and we put them into a box. We create this God box. Because, you know, you got to kind of have some platform in which to, to think about God and, and how you live your life with God. And so we all use the idea of a box. We build this box. We put God in this box. How we expect him to work or behave because usually of experience. But when something happens, when God does something that doesn't fit in our box, now what? Because I've kind of defined how God's going to work. So there's my God box and all of a sudden something happens and it's not fitting in the box. It just doesn't work. I, I can't figure out how to get, how do I explain it? And what do I do with it when it's not anything based on what I, I know or have seen of God? This can't be from God, they said, because God wouldn't heal the sick. Catch this. Their rationale was this. Well, this guy can't be of God because God would not heal the sick on the Sabbath, nor would he feed the hungry on the Sabbath. Now, we look at that and we think, Man, what better day to heal the sick? What better day to feed the hungry than the Sabbath? But don't forget, their box didn't allow for that. They built the box. So in their minds, it's kind of go, well, this can't be because we've already established how God works and God doesn't do these things on the Sabbath. As odd as it sounds to us, I would say to you, not all that odd because quite honestly, every one of us has our box that we'll then create. So they're in turmoil with what to do with their box. And we do that all the time. And not only with God, but our relationships, we put all the relationships in a box. And when something happens out of the box, we've got to figure out what to do next. So they're divided. Now, which direction are they going to go? Well, 
They can't figure it out, so they decide to, you know, take the next step with this blind guy in verse 17. So they turned again to the blind man, so what have you to say about him? It was your eyes that were open. This is just a classic moment here. They can't figure it out, so what do you have to say? It was your eyes that he opened. So the man replied, I think he's a prophet. Well, they still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man. So they sent to the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one that you say was born blind? And how is it that now he can see? So they go back to the son. They say, okay, so you are the guy that was blind. So help us. So you tell us what do you have to say about this guy and they're opening your eyes. This is a brilliant line of questioning. And the guy goes, I really don't know. So I'm going to go with prophet. I think the guy's a prophet. Whoever this guy is, I think he's a prophet. Their response is, well, you can't be the same guy. Now, why, what does that mean? It means that he just gave an answer that is plausible but doesn't fit in their box. So as soon as they say, what do you say? God, I think he's a prophet. They go, well, that can't be true. And so they go back to, then you can't be the guy, you can't be the guy that was blind. Apparently, this is some mistake. It doesn't fit into our God box. I had a friend back in Detroit who was the director of Youth for Christ, the east side of Detroit, director for Youth for Christ. We shared an office together, so I got to know him well. And he was a part of a ministry, Youth for Christ. Their whole, their whole bent and direction, um, just like Young Life is, is kind of a different, different version of a Young Life, their whole deal was to reach kids in high school. Now, please know that they weren't doing reaching kids in high school, or high school students through the church they were purely in the schools. See, in churches, if student ministries doesn't go, you know, really well, if you will, it's no problem because we've got kids that are here by default. But if your ministry is to be purely in the high school, if you're not getting it done, it's not getting done. And they were getting it done. And they had radical stories. I witnessed them. I heard some of these kids that would place their faith in Jesus Christ who were coming from no church background, uh, you know, no heritage, no nothing, but somehow they can make a connection. And along the way, these kids would make a decision for Jesus Christ. They'd go away to camp or a weekend retreat, and they had this life-changing moment. Now, when I say life-changing moment, please know I'm not talking about a moment where, you know, kumbaya around the fire at the end of camp, and, you know, it was a really moving thing, and then everything falls apart. These were some kids that had this radical change because of Jesus Christ. Manning, when they got back into school, their grades changed, um, radically changed. Their work ethic changed. Their attitudes were better. Their behavior was better. They stopped drinking, changed lifestyles. And he would share with me how parents would be in absolute disbelief. And they would sit there and they'd say, well, we can't understand the change and they would sit there and say, well, it's God. And the parents would go, it can't be. Why? Because the thought that God would bring about such change was something that was beyond explanation. But they struggled because what they saw, undeniable. The parents would be in disbelief because they can't put it, they, they, God didn't fit in the box. So you got a God box. I mean, you know, you know, you know you do. We all do. Now, I originally was going to say to you, friends, let me give you a word of advice. Don't put God in a box. I mean, you've heard that, right? And I was going to say that. But, you know, as I wrote it, I even wrote it in my notes at the beginning. Don't put God in a box. I thought, that's just that inaccurate. Because that's impossible. You're going to build a God box. So I'm going to be making a more practical application. Go ahead and build your God box. Just don't put a top on it. Right? 
we don't, even when I was writing that, I'm going, man, that's how I've lived my whole life when I've gotten it right, is that, you know, instead of blowing up the box, it's because I keep trying to put God in this box, but instead I'll build the box, but I'll leave the top off. Because it allows room for God to do that, which in our lives sometimes is unexplainable. So the blind guy wasn't helping them out at all. Uh, so he's just blowing up their box, and so they continue on in a different line of questioning. And so they say this. They go, so they get to the parents, so they go, okay, so is this your son, verse 19? Is this your son, they ask, is this the one who you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? Well, we know he is our son. I love these parents. They go, well, one thing I know for sure, we know this is the right one. The, the parents answered, and we, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, and he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, ask him, he is of age. So the, par- the Pharisees had already made a decision of how God would operate. Any evidence to the contrary really didn't matter. Any explanation of what happened to this guy that included Jesus in the explanation would be unacceptable. And so they say to the, to the parents, what happened? They go, man, we don't know. I don't know what happened, but it did happen. And these Pharisees are in a place where they're saying, we don't know what happened, and we can't put Jesus into the equation because we reject that. It doesn't fit in our box. So the only thing they can come back with is this. So we know this. If what happened happened on the Sabbath, then it cannot be from God. See, what happens in our lives often, when it doesn't fit in the box, we find some way to discount it. And so that's the best they could come up with. And we just know this. If it happened on Sabbath, it could be from God. Now listen, folks. Listen very carefully. God will do things at times in your life, in our lives, to show himself to us at times that just doesn't fit in our box. God will do things in your life. God will show up in your life in ways at times where you will say, I don't know what to do with that. And he will do so simply to demonstrate who he is. And you're not going to be able to fit it in your box if you've got a lid on the box. So give room for that. Could it be, could it be in some of these moments in our lives that our Heavenly Father is trying to pry the lid off of your box and to show you how much bigger He is? How much more present He is? How much more personal He is than you've ever allowed Him to be when you decided to box Him in? Well, that conversation with the parents isn't going anywhere. So they have an idea that says, well, let's call the son back. This didn't work, let's call him back. So, verse 24. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man, referring to Jesus, is a sinner. And he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. One of my favorite quotes of the scriptures. All I know is I was blind and now I see. He says, let me tell you what I'm certain of. You're asking me, you're saying this man's a sinner. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. You know, I don't have the ability to look in a person's heart. You ever do that from somebody? You look at them and you judge them, never having any idea what their heart looks like. But this guy, sharp enough to say, I can't see the heart. Maybe you can, so I can't say sinner or not. But I do know one thing. Once I was blind... 
Now I can see. He goes, it's that simple, guys. It's not complex. In fact, I can imagine him thinking to myself, you know, I can see. I would sure like to celebrate instead of being interrogated. I could see him thinking to himself, my parents for their whole life have thought about what's going to happen when they die, who's going to take care of me. My parents their whole life have wondered, how are they going to care for me when they're gone? And all of a sudden, I can see. And we can't celebrate that because you can't figure out how to put God in your box. Verse 26, and then they asked him, well, what did he do to you and how did he open your eyes? Don't forget, these are questions they've already gone through. So he answered this, hey, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) And then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Um, How did he do it? The guy goes, I don't know. I was blind. All I can tell you is I can see. Now I see. And I can imagine him also thinking this, if not saying it. You know, I have been judged, looked down upon my entire life because I'm blind. And now the insults continue by you guys. Now because I can see? How does that work? And he says, and all of this is, and you don't even know who this guy is, Jesus. Verse 30 The man answers, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to the sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. And no one has ever heard of the opening of eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, then he could do nothing. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now, first, I would say this guy is actually a pretty good theologian. In fact, the problem in the story is he's actually using their own theology, and it's not working for them because it makes sense. Actually, they said it earlier, and he's repeating it back. But the key part of that that passage I just read were the words, and they threw him out. There's something you need to know. When they threw him out, they were not throwing him out of the room. They were not throwing him out of the discussion or the debate. They threw him out of the synagogue. See, that is a huge statement. You see, what that would mean is they were throwing him out of the synagogue. They were throwing him him out of the community of faith. He could no longer participate in temple worship, no more atonement for his sin. He was now considered to be a pagan, in fact, worse than a pagan because he had left the faith. And people that he knew could not associate with him, people he knew could not talk with him, people he knew could not eat with him, could not have him in his house. He was going to be completely isolated from this community. And it was permanent This was lifelong. This was not for a moment. So when it says they threw him out, they did not throw him out of the room. They threw him out of the community of faith. Now think about this. All of this on the greatest day of his life. He can finally see. And he's thrown out of the very community of faith that he's been a part of. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me 
so that I may believe in him. Now, I want you to remember that he wouldn't have known who Jesus was by sight. I also want you to remember that when he could see, when he went from blind to sight, he didn't go to find Jesus, he went home. And this is now happening, we believe, over a couple of days' time that all this is taking place. And so Jesus goes and finds him. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? So it makes sense when he says, sir, if I, I do, just tell me who he is. And I'm just thinking, though, and again, this is not in the text, though he wouldn't know him by sight, I'm just wondering if he may have recognized the voice. I'm wondering if he would have recognized the voice. I'm wondering if he would have recognized the voice along with a sense of compassion. I'm wondering if he would have put some pieces together just in all that had happened. You see, the Pharisees were still trying to define the abstract version of what took place. This guy, it was personal. Anyone who can spit in the mud and put mud in my eyes and make me see, if I'm this guy, I'm saying, I'll follow him anywhere. I don't care what they say about you. I'm in, and I will follow you. Now, a lot of times in my ministry, you know, through many, many years, people often say to me, as I'm talking about faith, they'll say, Scott, do you ever doubt I mean, you talk with such assurance. I mean, you preach with conviction, confident. And do you ever have doubts like this whole deal, whether it's real or not? And I would say, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, this, this may not help some of you. Um, not only do I have doubts, but I've been a Christian long enough um, that I've got doubts that some of you haven't even thought about yet in your life. And some of you will go, oh, that's, that's horrible. That's actually reality. But let me tell you when I doubt most. I doubt whenever I forget what God has done and I begin to focus on what I want him to do. Isn't that right? You see, when I think about what he has done, man, my faith is just strong. But when I begin to focus on what I want to get done, what I want him to do, or when I want him to do it, or how I want him to do it, those are when the doubts begin to kick in. And I'm thinking that might be true for you as well. I begin to doubt when I, lose the, when I lose my focus of all that I have experienced, all that I've seen, all I've heard, all that I've watched, that God has clearly done. And then I begin to doubt. End of the story, verse 37, Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Let me wrap up. Researchers can do a complete and thorough study And they can report to us that it's not possible to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. And a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, you might as well blindfold a batter and see how he does. But the fact is, it's undeniable. Let me end by telling you what I know to be undeniable. It is undeniable that 2,000 years ago, there was a guy from Galilee, from Nazareth, that showed up. He was a nobody. He was not from royalty. He was not from money. He was a carpenter's son. His message is totally counterintuitive, totally irrelevant to the culture of that day. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. The Roman soldier asks you to walk one mile, you walk two. Turn the other cheek. And they would say, what are you talking about? You're nuts. What kind of message is that? 
Then he adds to his claim that I am the light of the world. Light of the world, you've never gone further than 25 miles from home. Let's not talk about the world. You know, folks, think about this. What's crazy is that there is no good reason why anyone 2,000 years later would know the name of Jesus Christ. It just doesn't make any sense. And then undeniably, he said this, I will die and will rise again. And what's undeniable is that hundreds upon hundreds of people claim to see him. Now, I didn't say he, he rose. I didn't say I can prove it. I can tell you what they claim. Hundreds and hundreds of people claim to have seen him. What's undeniable is that many of them actually gave up their lives, not for what they believed, but for what they said they saw. And today, 2,000 years later, on every continent of the world, in every country of the world, in languages that we have never, ever heard of, men and women will tell you a story about how they had a personal interaction with God through Jesus Christ and how that changed their life. And in all these stories, they will sound eerily similar to every other story. And yet those stories, there's been no collaborate, collaboration in it. These stories have spanned 2,000 years and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles apart. And yet every story will include that something happened personally that tipped the scale. What is your story? If you've never given your life to Christ, would you simply pray, Lord, I'm just going to trust you because you're a personal God. And I'm going to believe for you to show up. And he will. Look at your own life. Isn't it true? That something happened personally. You've met Jesus and you've never been the same. Stan, please, let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for the person that perhaps has never given their life to you, perhaps today would be the day where they would say, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say, I believe you. And for some of us, we'll go, oh, wait, 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 wait. They got to really understand what they're doing. You know, I, this blind guy didn't understand what he was doing. He was just blind and came back and Jesus said, do you believe me? Yeah, I'll follow you. And all of a sudden, all the lights came on. So for that person that has been hesitant, reserved, I got questions, I got things, would they just stop and say, okay, I believe you. May they meet you personally. Thank you for how you meet every one of us personally. As we leave here, remind every one of us, take the lid off our box and give you plenty of room to work. All for Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Make sure you stop down in that uh, video cafe and say good morning to Ron and Nancy.